One of my uh, greatest fears growing up was that I would never live to my full potential. It's a thing. I don't know if you've ever had that. Like, would I ever live up to what God fully has for me? You know, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling like I have before, but would, would I ever live up to the best version of Kurt that I ever could be? It's something that used to consume me. I asked the questions like, will I ever be successful enough in my career? Well, then God called me to be a pastor, so you know how that goes. Uh, but, uh, but would I ever be successful enough? And what even does success look like? Does anybody feel that tension? You know, I, would I work on enough projects or would people know me enough that I would have like a name of some sort? You know, I thought about would, would I, when I'm on my deathbed, would I, I be like I went on enough adventures and I went on enough uh, wild rides and I had my family and I had like how would I reflect on my life? It's something that actually has consumed me. I don't know if you ever have that feeling. Maybe I'm the only one. But one of the things that often I think about is these deep moments where I have this ideal in my mind of what the best version of Kurt is, right? And so will you ever live up to the best version of you? That's a question that I always think about. It, 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 would there be a time where you're like, man, this is the best, fill in your name here. But as I matured as a believer, and I've really been thinking about this over the last three years, I've come to this place where I've asked this question, am I living up to the fullness that the Lord has for me? Am I living up to the fullness? Is the Spirit able to fully do what He wants to do within me to reach the people? Am I preaching the gospel at the right times to the right people? Am I caring for those in need enough? Am I answering the call in whatever, however the Spirit moves? It's a big thing for us as a believer. If there's anything that you'll get out of this church, this is the sum of it. Each one of us on mission, fully living the way that God wants you to, being Spirit-led, in this area. And I think about this, am I kingdom focused enough that in every area of my life to really live out this full life of Jesus that he calls us to in John 10, 10? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have always wanted a full life. That is what I've always desired. My biggest desire is having this full life in Christ. And I've always wanted to be spirit-led, so driven by the kingdom, so focused on what God has for me at the end, that it'd be like good and faithful servant. Don't we all want that, right? Do you ever have these moments where you reflect on your life? You reflect on how am I doing in that? How, what are the areas I need to grow? What are the opportunities in my life? I use this app, Selecto Divino 365. I've talked about it a, a, a couple times. But basically, it's a morning and an evening app that you basically, it's guided prayer. And in the evening, it asks us to really reflect on, is there any moments where I miss the Spirit working? Was there something that I was supposed to say or something I was supposed to do or someone I was supposed to reach out? I think it's an important question for us. We take time for the Lord to search our heart and reveal any opportunities that we may have missed. And most oftentimes, when I enter into these prayers, I hear one answer. And it's a really simple answer, but it's a really, really hard one to live out. I'm going to talk about this today. And the answer is oftentimes selfishness. Selfishness is what keeps us and holds us back so much in every area of our lives. So we're going to preach on that. Each one of us, when we reflect on our lives, I can guarantee that there is a time when selfishness gets in the way of God fully moving in an area of your life. Yeah. Reflecting on my life, there's been times I'm a pastor. I'm very open and honest with you guys. There are times where I'm like, I don't want to do that. 
I just don't want to do that. I don't want to take care of that person. I don't want to follow up on a phone call. I don't want to, I just want to sit here and veg out. There's times when the spirit starts to move, but like selfishness is this internal battle that we have. And the Bible speaks over and over again about how the life of the believer is to do this, to lay down our lives. But here's the problem. The self, yourself, is very, very strong. You are listening to it 24 hours a day. My psychologist friends would agree, right? The self is the most powerful thing in the world. And so what happens is we have these times where we fully want to live into something, but the self is just at war with the things of God sometimes. And we're going to see this. because I believe that we have to, as a body and individuals, lay down our lives. And if you have been a believer for 60 years, she's not here because she's got surgery like Mama Bertha, or uh, you're new to this, this is a struggle to lay down your life. And so as we continue the sermon series, Mind-Blowing Faith, we are going to talk about Samson. We're going old school here, but there are few Bible stories in the book, the Bible, than Samson that's more mind-blowing. It's crazy. Now, Samson is a really interesting story because it's one filled with straight-up crazy stories, flaws and challenges, and really just plain self-centeredness. If you could sum up the Samson story, it would be self-centeredness. And so we look at Samson. At the end of the day, Samson is this. He's a straight-up narcissist. Like, he is a narcissist. Like, he is consumed by himself. He gets what he wants. He desires a lot. He's very self-centered. And ultimately, he's pretty childish. If you look at the sermon or the, at, the, at the story, he's very childish. It's something that we can do. So let's just jump into the Samson story. Judges 13.1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Okay, we talked about this in Gideon. We just did the Gideon story. There is a pattern that happens in Judges. Judges is kind of a depressing read. There's not very many high points, but there's a ton of low points. So we see this, that the book speaks over and over again about corruption and sin, the Israelites are corrupt, they sin, and so the Lord hands them over to the Canaanite, one of the Canaanite leaders, right? They do this over and over again. This time it's with the Philistines, and it's going to be for 40 years, and then he's going to raise up this person, and he keeps raising him up, and then we see this pattern, and so this time it's time for Samson to step up, and so we see this, Judges 13, 2 through 5, a certain man uh, of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childish, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So this is the call, okay? So Samson's parents are unable to have kids, and the angel comes down and tells Samson's mother, you are going to have a kid, but that's not it. He's just going to promise more. He's going to say, it's this interesting narrative because he's going to say, you're going to give a son, and he's going to be dedicated as a Nazarite. Now, this is one that often 
or most often that people chose, right? So being the Nazarite vow, taking this vow, is something that people chose. But Samson's going to get it from God. God's going to say, this is who he is. This is the vow that he is going to take. So it's important when we read the story to understand Samson didn't make this choice. The Nazarite vow was something that people chose, but he gets it given to him from God. So what is the Nazarite vow? We have to go back to Numbers, number six. And we see this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain under the Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skin. There's a lot going on there, okay? We'll unpack that a little bit more. During the entire period of the Nazarite vow, uh, we'll see this uh, vow, no, no razor must be used on their heads, and they must be holy until the period of their dedication, and the Lord is over them. And throughout the period of the dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body, okay? So there's three things. There's three things in this vow. They are not to partake in grapes of any form. And what's interesting is that in Hebrew tradition, it's not just not drinking wine and not eating grapes. It's actually interacting with grapes in any way. And it was really not to interact with these grapes. And number two, a person under a Nazarite vow would not come into contact with a corpse, a dead thing of any time. I could take this vow. And let's be honest. That's not something I, I want to do as well. But probably the most famous is the story of the hair. They're not supposed to cut their hair as well. So these are the three things. And what we see is that each one of these issues is going to come up in the Samson story. And what we see is that Samson is actually really apathetic, and he's really actually uh, kind of uh, self-centered when it comes to this kind of way that he's supposed to live. And so he lives this vow. He doesn't live this vow. Instead, he's really apathetic to this vow. Can anybody relate to this? We often can't relate to Samson's story because it's kind of far out there. But I think in this, each one of us can understand there is times in our faith journey where self-centeredness and apathy comes into our faith journey. We are in a season in the American church, if you don't hear anything from me, you hear this, in the American church where apathy and self-centeredness is getting in the way of the church fully living the way that God wants us to live. I do believe that. I do believe that there is times where it's like, man, I just don't want to pray. Man, I don't want to get in my word. They call, we call ourselves a Christian, but we're not in Christian community. We're not actively engaging in the things that the Spirit's moving us. We're not in our word in the, enough. We're not praying enough. And so we can get into this self-centeredness and apathy that we find. So we'll talk about this. So Samson gets this call from the angel. Husband doesn't believe. The angel comes back tells him, and the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Very important to understand this. The Spirit of the Lord is stirring in him. Samson is born, and the Lord blesses him, and as he grows, the Spirit's stirring. I was praying for the Spirit to stir, because I love this image, the Spirit to stir in our congregation. This is the plan. The Spirit is going to play a mighty, mighty role. So the first story that we get with Samson, let's hop in there, Judges 14. Samson went down to Timnah 
And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Uh Uh-oh. And he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Notice the ending of the statement. Verse 3 says that she is right in my eyes. This is a theme of Samson's life. This is often a theme of our lives as well. We want to live out our faith. We want to be led by the Spirit. Samson has this vow on his life, but at the end of the day, more often than not, we want what's right in our eyes and not what's right in the Lord's eyes. We chase what's right in our eyes and not in the Lord's eyes. And the book of Judges says this multiple times. Just going a little bit further, it says in in Judges 17.6, talking about the judges and about Samson in particular, in those days there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It repeats this line several times in the book of Judges. What's interesting is that we live in a culture that's telling us the same thing. Do what you feel like. Do what you want to do. Do what you just have that gut feeling that you want to do. Do what's right in your own eyes, but we know that it always leads to destruction. Matter of fact, it's, it's the challenge that we have in the American church. There's like self-help sermons. We'll do this, right? Like It's like, hey, here is some faith principles, but it's really go out and live your dreams. Really go out and do what you do. Go ahead and do what you feel like you want to do. But instead, it's really focused on The Lord wants us to lay down our life, and God desires us to do that. Moses had urged this years before Judges. In Deuteronomy 12, 8, he says, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. This is a challenge that we have, doing what we're right, doing what right in our own eyes. As I wrestled with the story of Samson, I discovered some profound lessons that's kind of beneath this conflicting action that we see. Samson's saying, get her for me if she's right in my own eyes. The phrase captures more than Samson's attraction. It's going to reveal the condition of his heart. And when we get selfishness and chase after the things that are right in our eyes rather than the things that God desires, it's talking about our heart condition as well. So we can relate to Samson in this. You'd be like, what is he doing? Are you crazy? But really, all of us on a daily basis are doing this. We're chasing after what's right in our eyes. Let's keep going. Judges 14.4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. We see is that God is doing something behind the scenes. This is good news for us. Doing something behind the scenes that neither Samson nor his mom and dad know about, okay? So the Lord is in this. His narcissism is actually getting used by the Lord here. So we'll see that. That's not true in all the cases of his stories. But despite our selfishness and our self-centeredness, our need for control, God is going to do what God is going to do. It's important for us to understand. This is, there's hope within this. 
and God will still work through us. I just hope that we agree that God's plan is better than our plan, or at least in my life, I've found that to be true. Oftentimes, I think that my plan's the right way, but oftentimes the Lord helps me see that. That God is the one seeking the occasion against the Philistines here, okay? And so we're going to see this. He's going to use Samson despite all of his shortcomings, so there's hope for us. The tragedy of this is that it's one of the greatest fears of my life, not to fully live the way that God desires us to live. So we see this. God gets the hero, God is the hero of this story. So Judges 14, 5 through 9. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came out towards him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out with his hands and went on eating as, well, as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave them some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Yeah, if you ever do that to me, don't tell me either. I will throw up. Now, these lines are significant to the rest of the story. What do we see? What do we see? Number one, we see grapes. He's going through these grapevines, right? He's very apathetic to this. He's walking through the Napa Valley of Israel of the time, right? So he's good with grapes. He's going through that. So that valley gone. He then is using his bare hands, and he sees this lion in this corpse. And he's going to do this on his wedding day, no less. On my wedding day, I legitimately, I'm not making eye contact right now, I legitimately got in trouble by my wife and my mother-in-law for Marty and my groomsmen to do a pickup football game. Uh, it was at least an hour and a half before the wedding started. Before we got into our suits, it could have been broken bones, totally understand that. We were playing, it was fun, but I got in trouble for that. I at least did not dig my hands into the lion corpse to get some honey, all right? So I will hold true that I'm good on this. But this is on his wedding day, and it's a carcass, it's a body, and he's going to touch it. So now that vow. And that's the vow that's going to see. And so what we see is that we continue. The Spirit of the Lord, even with those two things out of the way, the Spirit of the Lord is going to keep stirring in him. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to come, and he's going to multiple times see great feats of strength. So he has this riddle, and this riddle no one can figure out. So he tells his wife, and his wife tells the, the Philistines, and he ain't happy about it. And the, but the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garment to them because they had known the riddle. It's crazy. It's crazy to think. Okay, we see this. Then the wife, the father, gives the wife to one of his friends. Samson's not happy about this. I totally understand why. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of the tails. And what we see is we see they set fire to the torches and he let the foxes go onto the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. 
This is crazy. Another crazy story that goes, all right? So now these Philistines are mad because they just, this like train of foxes, I don't know how it works, is burning up all their grain. And the Lord comes, and th- or 3,000 men come to trap Samson. And we see this, Judges 15, 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax and was caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put, it out of, out, uh, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. All right. So what we see, this is mind-blowing stuff. He just busted up 1,000 men with a donkey bone. Now, I, I'm not a Hebrew, uh, you know, study. I don't study this quite, but Brendan helped me know that actually jawbone here is translated as a machine gun. That's the only way that you can make sense of this thing. It's not really. Everyone's face kind of went, that's actually not it. That was a joke. But he takes this donkey bone, and he's got some judo moves, and he's just, he's killing a thousand men. Mind-blowing stuff. Some crazy judo moves happening. What's interesting So what's interesting for me, when I grew up in the church, you have the Sunday school version of Samson in your mind, all right? You see this. Samson was like a Marvel superhero, right? With superhero strength, he slew a lion with his bare hands, lifted a city gate off its hinges, and repeatedly took on like dozens of Philistines, right? So he was a hero hero that every boy wanted to emulate, at least I did. But what's really interesting, many images and stories that growing up where it's this story, this image of Samson as this huge Goliath-type dude. Like, here's a Google image search of some, some Samsons, right? These are absolutely ridiculous. But these are some Google image search. I don't know if he choked out the lion or if he punched out his eye like the second one. But these are what Samson, what, how we kind of grew up thinking about Samson. Like this dude that's just yoked, right? But that's not what it says. We can begin to think that his strength comes from his muscles or his physique. But what's interesting is not once does the narrator talk about his muscles or his physique. Matter of fact, his size or his muscles or his overall build was never discussed. So where does this strength and might come from? Because this is what would have confused the Philistines. Because it's not like this is just a huge dude that they got to try to figure out. There is some supernatural strength that's happening. So where does it come from? It comes from the spirit of the Lord. This is where our supernatural strength comes, is the spirit of the Lord. And until we get that, we will not really move into the mighty feats that the Lord wants for each one of us. All the times there are these mighty feats that happen to Samson, it says the spirit of the Lord comes on him over and over again. And so this powerful story of this Nazarite vow was so important to the story. The assumption is that the might or the strength is in his hair, right? There's an assumption, but it wasn't. Now, I would have done anything for Samson's hair. I just want to throw that out there. (laughs) I have always wanted good hair. And Trisha is my hair dresser. She knows I ain't got good hair. And I I never had good hair. Matter of fact, when I was in high school, I don't know if anybody else did this, but I I tried tried to use this stuff. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Mane and tail. (laughs) Did anybody mane and tail it? The original horse to human crossover. It was, a, it was a, a thing that you put on your hair. You left in for like three minutes, and supposedly it was supposed to make it long and lush and fuller and stronger, but I've always had this hair. The longest I ever had my hair, 
and I asked my mom for a picture, I promise I did, but she didn't have one, was I had this haircut. Did anybody have this? The bowl cut. <laughs> that was rocking. In eighth grade, my hairdresser literally put a bowl on my head, cut around it perfectly straight, and then buzzed under it. I might bring that look back. Diego, let me know if that's what the kids are wearing. All right. I rocked the bowl cut. But I would have done anything for this hair right here. Chris, our drummer. Come on. Those golden locks, baby. I'd take those golden locks all day. I really do get jealous of his hair, but if I could have hair like that. I took that picture. You didn't even know what I was going to use it for. But it's so important for us to understand that this Sunday school idea of this strength in the hair is so wrong. Because what happens is, why is this problematic? If we think that the hair is directly tied to his strength, we begin to think it's this magical thing happening. There's no magic happening here. What's really happening is this. The strength is not in the hair. He's not Rapunzel. There's no magic happening, but rather his strength comes from the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord is our strength. When the strength is discussed, it's always coming with the spirit of the Lord at the same time. And so the Philistines were really probably confused by this. They've been like, this dude is not really that big. This dude has just killed a thousand of us with a jawbone of a donkey. What is going on? This is straight crazy. But what we see is that in the spirit of the Lord came on Samson, great feats would happen. So we have to understand this. Chapter 16, we see the Philistines are mystified by this. And this is why they hired Delilah. Delilah. Um, after this, he loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means he may overpower him and that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where you get your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So Samson's going to tell her some straight up lies, right? So the first thing he tells her is seven fresh bowstrings. Find seven fresh bowstrings, tie me up. I'll be like an ordinary man. Man, no luck. Then he's going to say, okay, bind me with new ropes that have never been used. And I promise you, I will be like a regular man. No luck. Third one, I don't quite understand this, but it says to weave seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. No luck, all right? And so we get to this. He's, he says this, and he, he's going to break the vow. And he's going to say, I've been around grapes. I've been around carcasses. Nothing's happened to me. And so he's going to say, what could go wrong? So he tells her the truth. And he says, told her with, his, with all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, and I have made a Nazarite, been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. What do we see? 1620, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke and from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him because his hair got cut. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. 
and to bound him with bronze shackles, and and he ground and he ground at the mill in the prison. It's not that his hair was strength; it's that now he had the final blow to the relationship that was given yes. to him. The vow with God now had its final blow. The relationship is separated because of ego and selfishness, and he has lost his strength. He's lost his power. Samson had become apathetic about grapes. He had become apathetic about carcasses, and now he was apathetic about his hair, and his strength is completely gone. What's really happening is that his hair is removed, and God actually removes his presence from Samson. The spirit of the Lord moves and he loses his strength. Now it's interesting. This is very symbolic. Israelites were hairy people. I don't know how else to say it. They were known as hairy people. Egyptian writings, they were like, these people are hairy. All right? The Philistines were known as clean-shaven people. Like all the ancient depictions of them are like clean-shaven, clean face. They're, They're looking good. And so what we see is that there's really this really interesting thing of this being shaved is this symbolic act that's really, really powerful because he's losing his ritual tradition. He's no longer, not only does he not have the strength there, but he's no longer even looking like an Israelite. So number six tells us that the Nazarites actually marked a move or a moment from holy status to holy to ordinary status when their hair was cut. So when you were done with your vow, if you cut your hair, you were done with the vow, and you moved from holy status to ordinary status. So Samson, when his hair is cut, he's moving from, from holy status to ordinary status. And I think that we as an American church can really be, be we need to be careful of this. Yeah. We can start looking more like ordinary status than holy status. Yeah. We can really start looking like this. Samson is actually allowing somebody to take his spiritual identity. And we lose this. What happens is the spirit is removed. Samson's selfishness and his self-assurance and his ego and his belief in his own power is really keeping him from fully living the fullness of life. So what do we do with the Samson story? Three things. Number one, we need to understand what it means to live according to our sacred status. For Samson, there is a disconnect between his spiritual status and his lifestyle status. You all, me as well, need to take inventory. Is there a disconnect between our spiritual status and our lifestyle status? Because if there is, we have to come to terms and look more like our spiritual status than our ordinary status, all right? At times, there is a tension. We chase after what's right in our own eyes, not what's right in God's eyes. And when we do that, we lose our spiritual status. You were bought with a price to glorify God. Your status is now in Christ. That's who you are. It's a spiritual significance that we are in Christ. We are no longer ordinary, but we are spiritual beings. We have to understand this. We are not called to become slaves to man's opinions or desires. We are called to make Christ the Lord of our life. And what we see is that we are to that we are to glorify God with our mind, with our bodies, with our emotions, with our desires, with every part of our lives. It's a huge temptation in today's world. Huge temptation to move from holy status to, to really ordinary status. Point number two, 
We must die to ourselves. Man, if there's anything in the Bible, we must die to ourselves. Every day we must die. Samson was consumed by his own interest, his own desires. And what we see is that dying to ourselves in particular is very, very, very hard in this generation. To die to ourselves is very hard in this generation. There's several powerful verses. I'm going to pop through them. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. No, this is not saying do some things. It's okay to do some things. Or as long as it's not the majority of things. It's saying do nothing out of selfish ambition. Everything that you do, is there selfish ambition here? No. Okay, move forward. This is a really hard way to live. We're not to have any kind of self-seeking or self-promoting attitude towards anything. It's wrong for us to elevate ourselves above others. It's saying that if we can't humble ourselves, then we can't humble ourselves under the Lord if we are always trying to build ourselves up above people. There is a disconnect. If we are called to humble ourselves to the Lord, we can't go self-seeking and self-promoting to try to make ourselves better than others. It does not work like that. Humility begins with surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. James 3 tells us this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. This is some deep stuff. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Man, I could just preach on this, but I'm just going to throw it in. I probably will preach on this at some point. James is starting off with this important question. Who is wise and understands among you? That's a very important question. Now, one of the traps that we see is that there's this, there's this tendency that we can say, those who are clever are the one who are wise. We tend to look for people who uh, may sound smarter than us, that may appear smarter than us, that may have the right words at the right thing moment. But wisdom is actually something that can be shown. This is what this is saying. Yeah. It's actually something that can be shown. Wisdom can be shown. We listen to the smart people. We listen to the clever people. But if their lives aren't practicing now, James is saying they're actually not wise. Yeah. It's not, it's seen, it's not primary words, but it's deeds. You need to follow the person who's living a wise life, not talking about a wise life. And what we see is that someone's conduct in their lives is rather to show them, show us who's wise than to just talk about it. But what we see is that envy, selfishness, and pride will always show a lack of wisdom. So when we see people who are in, have envy, who are selfish, and who have pride, they're actually showing you that they're not wise. No matter what's coming out of their mouth, they're actually showing you that they're not wise. And so we see this. We see this multiple times in the story of Samson. Verse 15, wisdom is in parentheses. It's saying a wisdom that is motivated, motivated by wishing to pull others down or to push ourselves forward 
or to get what we want is opposite of heavenly living. And matter of fact, it's unspiritual and it's actually demonic. This is big stuff. And so what we see is it's false wisdom. Psalm 119, turn my heart towards your statues and not towards selfish gain. This section of Psalm 119 is all about personal transformation. If we listen to anything, listen to this. It's all about personal transformation. And what he's going to say is it's simply this. A transformed heart looks like a turned heart. It's saying a turned heart. Turn my heart. This phrase is expressing this idea that ultimately the heart is going to be wayward. No matter how many times you come to church, no matter how many times you read your Bible, no matter how many times you pray, ultimately your heart, my heart, every human heart out there is going to go wayward. That's what's going to happen. That's what the psalmist is writing. Everyone's heart is stubborn. Everyone's heart is rebellious. Everyone's heart is perverse in some ways. That's the human condition. Samson's was and ours will be at times. But the heart needs to be turned. We actually physically have to turn our heart to to pursue the things of God and not selfish gain. Because over and over again, we're going to choose selfishness over the statues of God. And so we can't do anything with selfish ambition. The wise are the people that practice selflessness, not selfishness. And how we do it? We turn our hearts. We turn our hearts. We have to persuade our hearts to fall the way of God and not the way of selfishness. When we become apathetic, when we become self-centered, we actually aren't turning our hearts. We're just going whichever the right way our eye leads us, not the way that God leads us. There's a physical element to this. There is a wrestle. The self is very, very strong. We talked about that. The spirit's stronger, but the spirit is going to come in. It's going to be that still small voice. And when we got the self-centeredness, the pride, and the apathy, we're not going to fully live the way that God wants us to. We need some help turning to God's ways versus our selfish ways. And our hearts always will turn towards selfish gain and dishonest gain and unjust gain. We all have to die to ourselves. Number three, we all must embrace God's sovereign plan. So important for us to know that Samson's story and our stories, God will fulfill his plan. That's what I love about God, no matter what. God is going to. God will fulfill his plan, but it's our responsibility to participate in the plan. That's our responsibility. God is going to fulfill. Please hear me say this. He chooses to work through us and with us, but it's our responsibility to engage with his kingdom on a daily basis. And you cannot do that if we don't lay down our life. Physically impossible. It's an amazing thing about God. God is working around Samson's selfishness and his vengeance. Proverbs 16.9 tells us, In their hearts, humans plan their course. I'm as guilty as anybody in this. But the Lord establishes their steps. What we see is we plan things, we desire things, but the Lord is going to determine those steps. From my limited experience, and I know many of you could share stories, it's just going to be a lot more painful if we don't get in alignment. We can go our own plans. We can think that we have it all figured out. But man, if we don't get in alignment with the kingdom of God, he's moving anyway. So we move our alignment in our hearts 
to the way that the Lord wants. It doesn't bring pleasure to God or doesn't bring pleasure to Samson. It doesn't bring pleasure to us. To be on this faith journey, to have that full life, we have to lay down our lives. Worship band, you can come on up. We have to learn from people like Samson and ultimately die to ourselves and to our desires, and it has to be us 100% for the kingdom. 100% for the kingdom. That's my heart of this church. 100% for the kingdom. It's a daily practice, and it's a discipline, but it's literally, Lord, search my heart. So go ahead and stand up. We always try to be it's always, I always like to say this, this isn't supposed to look like a concert. It's supposed to look like a CrossFit gym. So I'm going to have you guys bow your head. And it just kind of open up your hands if you feel called to that. Just open your heart. All it is is saying, I'm at a place where I'm just going to receive whatever the Lord has for me. When you cross our arms, it's just saying, oh, I'm, I'm good. But open your hands. There's nothing magical to it. But open your hands. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal anywhere that selfishness has come into our body, anywhere that pride has come in. Literally says the Holy Spirit searches our hearts and reveals in us any of our evil ways, any of our wickedness. And what happens is when we're at church, this is a great place to say, Lord, forgive me. I turn away from that selfishness. I turn away from that pride. I turn away where I've tried to make the plans and not your plan. And I say, come Holy Spirit, Fill your body right now and stir in them. Stir in them anywhere that they've fallen short. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to each person. Each person here, will you remind us that, God, you are the hero in our stories, that we have freedom in that, that, Lord, that you are going to move. All we need to do is get out of the way. So, Lord, will you help us to be people who you are the champion for? Not people that focus on ourselves, but people that say, come and have your way with me. And, Lord, will you be the hero in this story? Will you be the hero in this church? Will you be the hero in Lakewood and UP and Stillicum and DuPont and Parkland, wherever we come from? Will you be the hero? And will you help us to simply be change agents who you choose to work through? Lord, will you not let us go in our selfish ways, but will you let us in every aspect of our lives lay down our lives and die for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.